Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Aura Ogunbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Mohammed Dahlan is a former security chief for the Palestinian Authority, whose name is often mentioned as a possible future Palestinian leader. We pay him a visit and ask about his vision for what should come after the war for Gaza. And turmeric stains everything. I used it in a DIY face mask once and it turned the tips of my nails bright yellow. I've put it in curries and stews and it's given my Tupperware a new hue as well. Now it turns out that its extra vivid colour isn't just annoying, it can be deadly too. First up though... China's summer blockbuster this year was not Barbie or Oppenheimer, but a movie called No More Bets. It's a propaganda film that warns of the risks of being trafficked to Southeast Asia to work in cyber scamming. And it shows criminal gangs flaunting huge piles of cash. The film claims to be based on true events, And today, cybercrime gangs are indeed causing problems off the silver screen. In multiple raids carried out by Singapore police, assets worth about 700... This is among the biggest crackdowns on money laundering. Ten foreign nationals have been arrested, 30 are said to be involved. Police have seized gold bars. Profits from online scams in Asia are often laundered through casinos before being invested in countries such as Singapore. Since August, the island nation has seized or frozen more than $2 billion in assets. All proceeds, they say, of criminal activity. And Singapore is just one of several countries dealing with a huge surge in money laundering across the region. Singapore is currently dealing with one of the world's biggest money laundering cases. Police have seized billions of dollars in cash, properties and luxury goods. Sulin Wong is our Southeast Asia correspondent. But they're far from the only nation facing off against transnational criminal gangs. A criminal tsunami has swept across Asia. It's linked to organised crime and to Chinese gamblers. It also sheds light on how Asia's transnational crime gangs operate. Sorry, Sulin, a criminal tsunami. What kind of activity are we talking about here? And where exactly in Asia is this all happening? Many of the crimes are happening online, so whether they're scams or money laundering or people being tricked 
into taking jobs they think are lucrative but are actually really just fronts for horrific human trafficking. And over the past few months, we've seen a whole range of arrests and raids by governments across Asia, be it from Australia to Hong Kong to Malaysia, the Philippines, Thailand and Singapore. Federal police have arrested seven people allegedly involved in a massive money laundering syndicate. There was more than 300 AFP officers raiding more than 20 properties all over the country. And it was targeting what the federal police are calling the Long River money laundering. In October, Australian police arrested seven people on suspicion of laundering the proceeds of cyber scams, smuggling and violent crime in what the Australian police said was one of the most complicated money laundering busts in its history. And that was the third China-related money laundering case that Australian police have made public this year. Uh, in June, police in the Philippines raided a giant online gambling firm, rescuing almost 3,000 people who claimed to have been tricked into working in cybercrime. I mean, the list goes on and on. There are so many other examples of things that have happened in recent months connected to this tsunami. So where do Chinese gamblers come into it? So in order to understand what's actually going on, we need to go back to 2012 when Xi Jinping took power. The Chinese government puts very tight limits on the amount of money that people can move out of China every year. But one way around this control for corrupt Chinese officials or Chinese business people was Macau, which is a self-governing territory of China near Hong Kong and one of the largest casino hubs in the world. So casinos have long been used as a way to mix licit and illicit money and the casinos in Macau were no different. And so a lot of money was moved out of China through Macau. But this all changed when Xi Jinping became China's leader and launched a corruption crackdown, which made it much harder for people to launder money through Macau. This meant people started looking for alternative ways to get their money out of China. And they found it in online gambling. And much of this initially took place in the Philippines, where online gambling is legal and Chinese were able to access these online casinos through social media platforms. Okay, but if online gambling is legal in the Philippines, then why is it driving up crime? So some of these online casinos in the Philippines were also conduits for money laundering. And some of these legal sites were being used as a cover for other crimes. And so it isn't uncommon in, say, Manila or Phnom Penh to find a licensed online gambling firm on one floor of an office tower and a sister scam operation on another. I was recently in Cambodia and, you know, I would see these legal casinos that had all the right documents from the government. And right next to it would be a scam compound with bars on the windows, people who were trapped inside, who were clearly caught up in illicit activities that were being run by the same people who were heading up the casino that had the right documents. To be clear, not all these online scams that we're seeing are directly linked to online gambling from China, but it is exacerbating the problem. Sulin, how much money is getting caught up in these scams? The United Nations estimates that the scam centres across Southeast Asia generate billions of US dollars in annual revenues. 
And what's important to understand is that even though these criminal gangs first shifted their money laundering operations from Macau to the Philippines, opposition politicians in the Philippines and public sentiment started shifting against these big online casinos that were sometimes being used as covers for other criminal activities. And so some of these crime gangs have simply shifted to other parts of Southeast Asia, like Cambodia and Myanmar. Between 2014 and 2019, the number of casinos in Cambodia rose by nearly 160%. And we're now seeing really big problems with casinos in Myanmar that are being used as covers for human trafficking, drug trafficking, all kinds of other illegal activities. And how are governments going to solve this problem? Governments have woken up to these issues and in September, the United Nations, China and ASEAN, which is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, teamed up to attempt to counter it. But only around 2 to 5% of money laundering flows are intercepted. And so it's going to be a real uphill battle. These criminal gangs are incredibly mobile. They can very quickly pack up shop and move to another country that has high levels of corruption and politicians who are able to be paid off, police who will turn a blind eye to this kind of crime. And given how much money these scams are generating, I think it's going to be very, very tough for governments to stay one step ahead of these criminals. Sulin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Ori. Yesterday's episode of Drum Tower, our weekly feature show on all things China, was the third in our four-part series on Taiwan. Our presenters hypothesize about the possibility of a Chinese invasion. How likely is this doomsday scenario? And what if America gets involved? And are the Taiwanese people ready to fight? Well, I couldn't tell you. But if you subscribe to Economist Podcast Plus by following the link in our show notes, you can enjoy our content just like this and find out more. To go public in a fair way. I recently travelled to Abu Dhabi with some colleagues from The Economist, where I met with a man called Mohammed Dahlan. Have you seen? Uh, he's often touted as a future leader of the Palestinians, and he's one of the most enigmatic characters in the Israel-Palestinian conflict. Gareth Brown writes about the Middle East for The Economist. So we managed to fly out from Tel Aviv to Abu Dhabi. That's not so straightforward these days with the rocket warnings, flights being cancelled. And we met in Mohammed Dahlan's villa. It's a very luxurious building. It was quite an informal setting. He was laid back. He smoked from a vape throughout the meeting. So it was an interesting atmosphere. Now, this is a guy that doesn't really speak to the media very much at all. He's in his 60s, but he looks 10 years younger. He's healthy. He's in shape. He's confident. And when he speaks, everyone listens. And that really came through in our interview, this charisma, which is sort of lacking among other parts of the Palestinian leadership. So who is he, though? Why is he considered a future possible leader of the Palestinians? Well, there's a number of reasons why his name is touted as a potential leader. He was born in Khan Yunis refugee camp in the south of the Gaza Strip. He really grew up in, in sort of abject 
poverty. And this camp is, is interesting because it's a sort of epicenter for Palestinian leadership. We can point to two other figures, Yahya Sinwar, who's the political leader of Hamas in Gaza, and Mohammed Adaif, who is the military leader of Hamas in Gaza. And they all kind of grew up within a few minutes in this same camp. So he took a different path. He rose the ranks of Yasser Arafat's Fatah movement, and that's the kind of secular Palestinian national movement. Through the 70s and 80s, he rose up the ranks. He spent a lot of time in Israeli prisons in the 1980s where he learned to speak fluent Hebrew. At his zenith, he was the Palestinian national security advisor for the Palestinian Authority. He's got connections on all sides of the conflicts, not just all sides of the Palestinian spectrum, but regionally with the Israelis. He's someone that speaks to absolutely everyone. Now, he's a controversial figure in Ramallah, in the West Bank, where the PA is based. He has some enemies, notably President Mahmoud Abbas. The two hate each other. I cannot emphasize that enough. He's got plenty of friends in Gaza, in the West Bank. He's got a lot of support, particularly in the refugee camps of Gaza and the West Bank. And as I mentioned before, he's got these interesting relations with senior Israeli figures. So you said he has connections across the Palestinian spectrum and is also kind of a divisive figure. Does that have to do with his past vis-a-vis Hamas and Fatah? Well, let's look at the Palestinian national movement. At the moment, it is dominated by two groups, two parties, two factions. You have Fatah. This is the movement that was led by Arafat, Yasser Arafat, for so many years. And it's this secular Palestinian national movement. And then you have Hamas, which was born out of the Muslim Brotherhood. So it's a lot more religious. It's a kind of Islamist Palestinian national movement. This kind of split really was quite bitter in 2007. Hamas won legislative elections, uh, and then there was a bit of infighting in Gaza. This is when Dahlan himself was in Gaza. And ultimately, Hamas seized power in the Gaza Strip, effectively a a coup d'etat. And ever since, you've sort of had these two Palestinian fiefdoms or kingdoms. You have Fatah, which controls the West Bank through the Palestinian Authority that's led by Mahmoud Abbas. And then you have Hamas in Gaza, who control the Gaza Strip. There's been various efforts to reconcile the two over the years. None have really got anywhere. And it's kind of seen that one of the main hurdles to that is, let's say, personalities. So a lot of Palestinians will say that there's a real urgent need for unity to bring Hamas and Fatah together. And I think someone like Mohammed Dahlan really believes he can play a role here. How so, though? What's his vision for the Palestinians after this war? Dahlan's name has been mentioned, particularly by the Israelis, as someone who would have the credentials to run Gaza if the Israeli military is actually capable of defeating Hamas and and pushing them completely out of the Gaza Strip. That can be debated in itself. But, you know, when I asked him about this, he denied that he was going to do this. You want to play a role? No. If the people in Gaza say... No, no, want you to run. no, no. I'm telling you, I'm not, polit- I'm not giving you political answer now. For simple reason. I know how much this job is hard. I tried for 40 years. I'm you not- often hear Palestinian officials, you know, in recent weeks say that they're not going to ride into Gaza on the back of Israeli tanks. And Dahlan was certainly of that thought. He had another idea, though. He suggested a sort of transitional period, a two-year transitional period, during which time the Palestinians would be essentially led by a technocratic government, and that would cover both Gaza and the West Bank. It needs to be collective and deep restructure, and to be sharing power with everybody, all the parties, because Hamas will not disappear, and quote me. 
And then after that period, you would have elections for a new Palestinian parliament. My idea is parliamentary system, not president, not heroes, because the time of the heroes has passed away with Arafat. He even pointed to the system in Britain where the parliament then elects a prime minister and then that prime minister can go into negotiations perhaps with Israel over a future Palestinian state and a peace settlement. I think an important thing to, to take into consideration about this idea of Dahlans is that he says that Hamas needs to be involved. He says all Palestinian factions need to be involved. And that's quite a significant thing, you know, that really puts the emphasis on Palestinian unity. And you mentioned he said he doesn't want to be a leader, isn't thinking about being a leader, but do you reckon he will nevertheless be a key figure here, a guy with ideas this big? I absolutely think he has a role to play. He's been in Abu Dhabi for more than a decade now, yet his name hasn't been forgotten. Um, if you go to the refugee camps in Gaza, you'll see pictures of him. People talk about him in the West Bank. You can read about him in the newspapers. You know, he hasn't been forgotten in exile and it's not hard to see him playing some sort of role. But what exactly does he want? That's not entirely clear. Since Dahlan moved to Abu Dhabi, he's become very close to Mohammed bin Zayed, the ruler of the UAE. And that's brought him access to, to power. It's brought him influence and quite a lot of money. And he told us that, you know, in recent years, he's been funneling about $50 million a year of Emirati money into Gaza. He also played a role in getting vaccines from the UAE into the Gaza Strip. So this is a sort of idea of, of how he's still playing a role from afar. So it's clear that Mr. Dahlan has, has big ideas. He has support certainly in, in some quarters here. How realistic, though, do you think his ideas actually are, the biggest ones? I think they're a lot more realistic since October 7th. I think since October 7th, the conversation about the Palestinian movement has completely changed. And I think there is an understanding by normal Palestinians, but also Palestinians in leadership positions, in all factions, and even members of the international community, you know, countries in the region who have a big stake in this, that things can't go back to how they were and there has to be some sort of change. I think one of the most striking things about Dahlan is that in the midst of this disaster that is unfolding in Gaza, he struck a note of optimism of hope that maybe things are going to change after this war for the better. There's a hope? The answer is yes. Because three months ago, there is zero hope. Because the Israelis living, occupying us, killing us gradually. Everybody happy. And now, everybody is talking about our suffering. Three months ago, it wasn't exist. Gareth, thanks very much for your time. Thank you for having me. Turmeric has long been considered to have many health benefits. The golden-colored spice is praised for its anti-inflammatory properties and is a staple in many South Asian kitchens. But in large parts of the region, that vivid color that draws people to the spice at the markets indicates that it could be tainted, and that could actually be deadly. Turmeric is widely used in South Asia, and one of the distinctive features of turmeric is its yellow color. Vishnu Padmanabhan is a data journalist at The Economist. And so in some places to heighten this yellow color and make it more attractive to prospective buyers, the roots from which the spice is extracted are covered with a pigment called lead chromate. And lead chromate obviously contains lead, which is a neurotoxin that damages the brain and the heart. 
any exposure to lead is dangerous, but consuming it through turmeric can be really bad for you. How serious is this problem? So the issue of lead poisoning is very serious in South Asia. According to a study published earlier this year, in 2019, it caused at least 1.4 million deaths in the region. Children are especially vulnerable as it hurts their cognitive development, which has long-term consequences. According to the Center for Global Development, a think tank, lead poisoning explains around 20% of the difference in learning outcomes between children in rich countries and poor countries. And another study suggests that the damage from lead is on par with air pollution. So it's a hugely important issue in South Asia that's not talked about enough. And you're saying that all of this comes from eating tainted turmeric? No, not exactly, because the challenge with lead poisoning is that the sources of lead exposure are everywhere. Studies in India and elsewhere in the region have found traces of lead in cooking utensils, cosmetics, and other products that are used daily. But turmeric is likely to be a big contributor in South Asia. We know this from the experience of Bangladesh. What happened there was between 2014 and 2018, a team of researchers from Stanford University and the International Center for Diarrheal Disease Research in Bangladesh identified that turmeric consumption was the primary reason for elevated lead levels in the blood of women in rural parts of the country. The turmeric they were consuming was tainted with lead chromate and driving up their lead levels. And crucially, in a follow-up study conducted earlier this year, they found that getting rid of lead chromate from turmeric can be hugely effective in reducing lead exposure. And how do they get rid of lead chromate? So once the researchers had identified turmeric as a source of lead poisoning in Bangladesh, the team worked with Bangladesh's government to launch a nationwide campaign. They started with food safety officials, but the issue went all the way up to the prime minister's office. There was a big publicity campaign informing people about the dangers of turmeric adulteration. So that meant notices were plastered in bazaars and newspapers. It was covered in local media. The prime minister, uh, Sheikh Hasina, discussed the problem on television. Uh, lead adulteration of turmeric was also declared a crime and violations were enforced and in a quite well-publicized manner. There were a couple of stings carried out on wholesalers of turmeric who were tainting their produce. And so that was broadcast on local TV. The researchers also worked with wholesalers and tested their workers to show how high their lead levels were to sort of demonstrate the scale of the problem. So it's a sort of a well-coordinated effort to highlight the issues and why it matters. And did it work? Yes, it was hugely effective. Within two years after they launched this nationwide campaign, the level of lead in turmeric samples from big markets had fallen from 50% to zero. Among turmeric mill workers, the lead levels in their blood fell by around a third. And nationwide, the elimination of lead from turmeric probably saved thousands of lives at very little cost. An estimate by Pure Earth, which is an NGO that works on this issue, calculated that the intervention provided an extra year of healthy life for an adult for the cost of just $1. But Vishnu, the Bangladeshis aren't the only ones at risk here. So could this work elsewhere? Yes, in theory it should. The same team of researchers are now trying to replicate this in India and Pakistan. What was really instrumental to the success in Bangladesh was that many things came together. There was an openness from the government to foreign expertise, a willingness to work with outside researchers and local NGOs that really helped. And then everyone came together to form a broad coalition. So this included journalists and even private turmeric sellers to really tackle the issue. So that made it a very low-cost intervention that did not really require much state capacity, which means it could work in other places like India and Pakistan. But there has to be an appetite to tackle the issue first. Vishnu, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me.
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. And don't forget that if you want to give Economist Podcast Plus a try, your first month is free on us. I know, right? How nice are we? All the details are in the show notes. So enjoy. And we'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow. 